ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Christopher Ernst. He's known as the Entrepreneurial General Counsel. He's been recognized by best lawyers and super lawyers, and his firm, which focuses on the needs of small and mid-sized businesses, has been recognized as one of the best law firms in America by U.S. News and World Report. He's written a book, Baldwin's Ohio Practice, Tort Law, and also works in the alternative dispute resolution field, serving as an arbitrator and mediator for business, employment, and tort law disputes. Hi, Christopher. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It is truly an honor. One of the trends we've been seeing with younger generations is an interest in entrepreneurship. And simultaneously to this, we're also seeing people who are in their third career act, so to say, make the leap into going into business for themselves, all of which is very exciting, but also something that is most successful when people take that leap from a solid foundation. And one of the foundational elements is the team they put in place to help them. And one of the most critical members of that team is legal counsel, which is why I feel incredibly lucky to have you on the podcast to talk about entrepreneurship and how to team with a lawyer successfully. So first, if I'm thinking of starting a new business, when is the right time to reach out to a lawyer? Uh, yes. <laughs> At, at, at that point, if you're thinking about starting up a business, then that's the time to talk to the lawyer. And the reason for that, that you incorporate the lawyer into the thought process at the very beginning, because the lawyer may be able to steer the thinking and the processes that, that the person is going through as they're developing this idea. What we're seeing today is kind of twofold. The younger people are tending to have a complete sense of disenchantment with the corporate working structure mm -hmm. and just don't want to play in that sandbox. What they're doing is saying, I don't want to go work for the great monolithic corporation where I can aspire in 20 years to maybe be mental management. They're saying, I'd rather reach for the brass ring today and I have this idea or I have this thing that I like to do. And I want to take the time to try to make that work. Conversely, what you're seeing with older people today, employers can't find the employees that they would like to have, which typically ends up being somewhere between fresh out of school and, oh, I don't know, 40 or 45 or so, and have basically cast aside people who are older than that. And even though you hear about great job opportunities, I can't tell you the number of people I know who are being turned down for many unstated reasons, but I think it kind of comes back to age discrimination. The older people, the 50-something worker, realize what's going on, but they're just not getting the chances. So what is happening is those people are now turning to entrepreneurism. We know that's a trend and you've described the trend. So why the lawyer early? Oh, okay, but actually where, what, to, to just 
finish the thought, I know where you want to go with this, but the finish thought is the people in the 50-something now who are going into entrepreneurism are going in for different reasons, different motivations. So where they're going to go with their business is different than where the 20-something is going to be going with their business. In both those instances, it's very important to get the lawyer involved, but primarily for different reasons. More often than not, the older generation is going in to basically do a business that they can do for the next five to 10 years. And they're not looking for expansive growth. They're not looking to take on multiple employees. They're more likely than not looking to simply do what they do for somebody else and get some money out of it. Whereas the younger generation has aspirations, bringing in a lawyer at the very beginning in both those instances is equally as important, but for different reasons. Okay. But there are a lot of jokes about lawyers. It's a whole genre of joke because a lot of people have had rough experiences and heard about lawyers who cost a lot of money and don't add a lot of value. That breeds fear and distrust. Obviously, this isn't true of all lawyers. But if I'm inviting this person into this conversation, I may be bootstrapping. I may not have much money. How should I envision the lawyer teaming with me? How should I envision what their skill set is? How should I frame the conversation? What kind of firm should they be from? What should I be looking for? Right. All valid questions. The answer to that is different depending on what the motivation is for the business. Let's be pretty pointed. Let's say I'm an older person. I want to have a five to 10 year window. I want to be a sole proprietor. How do I team with a lawyer? At that point, it's fairly straightforward because you're looking at, at a simpler organization. But if you incorporate it as an LLC, a limited liability company, uh, the IRS generally views those as being passed through organizations. So your taxation is done at an individual level as opposed to a corporate level with a regular, for instance, C-Corp. With a C-Corp, you're going to get taxation at a corporate level. And then once that money goes down to the individual, you're going to get taxation at the individual level, double taxation. Most people don't like that. They want to avoid it. So you either go an S-chapter route or you go an LLC route. But in, with the older person, in that instance, they have a bank of knowledge upon which they're drawing for 25 years of working experience. They know what they're doing. They know who their potential customers are, probably because they've been working with them to a degree to one degree or another during their career. So it really is a matter of establishing the corporate entity and then whatever necessary paperwork is required to run that business. So, I mean, I, you know, there's obviously organizational stuff like, uh, like corporate bylaws and whatnot, but more often than that, it's probably the standard set of contracts, you know, whatever the person needs for their standard set of contracts uh, in order to provide the services that they do. More likely than not, it's going to end up being a one-person shop, not even going to have an employee. So at that point, you know, there's, there's no need for an employee handbook because there's no employees that would be governed by the handbook. Mm -hmm. uh, but if they grow the business far enough, then maybe that's something that they need that they need to look to. Now, flip that around to uh, the Now let's person. talk about the younger person. I'm starting a venture. I have big, big plans. I also have no, no money. Right. So then you've got then you've got a bunch of different aspects to look at. One ad is one one is potential funding in terms of bringing in uh, shareholders, investors, bringing in investors by way of, of debt instruments, or uh, frankly bringing in other people into running the business. So they're not just a passive investor, but more of an active investor. Getting funding is is a topic that could be talked about for for weeks on end without a break because there's a whole bunch of different ways to do it. But all that getting funding asked. Aspect is predicated upon whoever's going to give the money is looking to make money. 
on their money that they're giving you. So suddenly, you know, attitudes shift a little bit, responsibilities shift a little bit, and you need to be, the, the business owner needs to be cognizant of what they're doing so that they are not, you know, running afoul, you know, either formally or informally of any sort of expectations that they have with their benefactors. Also, I suppose in that situation, if the person who has the money and they're the funding person, they come with their own parcel of lawyers and they're often going to say, here's our paper. And we'd like, mm -hmm. this is how we'd like to structure it. So your lawyer is your advocate in those conversations, correct? Oh, without doubt. The more money that you're dealing with, the more lawyers that investors are going to bring to the table. Flip it around in terms of what that entrepreneur needs for representation. You know, obviously, they need an attorney in there who is experienced in deals like this and what it takes to get businesses running. But they also, I think, need to look analytically at what really their lawyer's what their meat and potatoes really is. And by that, I mean, if you're going to a, a big law firm uh, and maybe you, you know, somebody referred you to a senior partner there or whatnot, well, that partner is probably charging anywhere between $500 and $1,000 an hour, which is a huge you know, a nut for someone starting out to pay. And then if that senior partner is not going to do the work and they're going to pass it down to a younger associate, you're still paying hundreds of dollars an hour for their work, but you're also putting yourself in a position where these associates are expected to be billing out so many hours a week, a month, a year. And unfortunately, and it's, it's in many ways an indictment of the profession, these people tend to be... Mm, more concerned about meeting the pressures that are placed upon them by their job? Well, it's their personal KPI. Their personal KPI is achieving a certain amount of billable hours and you are the vehicle to get them there. Whereas if I do, Sherry, their primary responsibility should be their client. Right. And unfortunately, those lines get blurred when you bring into the equation, you know, those internal business pressures, I'll give you a, a, a so before you give me the example, if you need to get money, you want somebody who has getting money experience. If we're specking out the nature of the lawyer, how important is this specialty? How important is it that they belong to a firm with multiple specialties or should you have your core team lawyer be that sort of sole prop lawyer? who then can bring in the players as necessary from other firms if they need them. I mean, let's be realistic though. If, if you're an entrepreneur starting, starting you know, some brand new business, more likely than not, you don't have the financial wherewithal to bring in your own fleet of lawyers. It's just, it's, it's too big. No, uh, well, it's exactly. Too... That, that's why I'm saying, I mean, you say get the lawyer right away. And I think I don't have any money to get a lawyer right away. Who do I even get? I definitely don't want to get, the giant law firm, but who do I get? And which what, what is, do they look like? What kind of is, firm? Which is why you need to seek out someone who works a lot with people who started, who start up businesses. So that's a, that is actually what I was getting, what I was poorly driving at is the profile. It isn't so much that they specialize in entertainment as they specialize in small business, if you're, if you're creating a business in entertainment. Is that correct? Okay. So you want, it's more somebody who specializes in people like you, not the specifics of what you're doing, but rather the spirit of what you're doing. Correct. And someone who has a business model that promotes doing that. Most new businesses can't afford 
to pay the lawyers five, six, seven hundred dollars an hour. They're looking for somebody that can bill out at a cheaper rate, just simply as a matter of budgeting. Well, if you're going to a what they call big law with a capital B and a capital L, they're not going to be able to charge that lower rate because their machine, the business that is the, the machine that is their business is geared to charging the higher rate because they've got to pay the rent for the A-class space. They've got to pay the raft of paralegals and the raft of secretaries and all that. So there's just nothing in that budget, in their budget, that makes it easy for them to represent that startup business without charging them an arm and a leg. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to be charged an arm and a leg. If you go to someone who is who uh, focuses on working with uh, small to mid-sized businesses who focuses on working with startups, then suddenly you've got a lot more flexibility. More often than not, they're not in a big law firm. More often than not, they don't have a, a, a huge overhead above them. So Those- if I'm interviewing lawyers, I want them to have a small a small office. I don't want to, I don't want to see a mahogany desk. I want to see an Ikea desk. I want to well, see something. I mean, like, I guess what I'm saying is what questions should desk? I... What <laughs> what questions should I be asking them about their business model? What questions should I be asking them? I mean, should I assume that it's always a a time billing situation? Is there billing by phase or project? So there, there's there's a couple questions in that. The best question probably to ask is what can you, what can you do for me? Um, as, as simplistic as that is, meaning what does it, what services does the lawyer provide for the, <clears throat> for the, for the, the startup business, for the, for the small business, for the medium sized business, because a lot of what a lawyer will do is counseling. There's a reason why we're attorneys and counselors at law. There, there are times I feel like I uh, am a priest you know, taking confessional sometimes <laughs> because they're seeking that counseling. And I'll tell you probably with my clients when, when, when the phone rings and we have a chat about their business, whatever the issue is, the business, it probably is law related 40% of the time, 50% of the time, maybe the rest of it is related to business operations. And this is kind of the, the, the key thing. And I haven't, I haven't clearly stated yet, but that lawyer is becoming, and it's, it's a trite phrase that was overused probably 10 years ago is becoming a trusted advisor. That lawyer is becoming someone whose knowledge and experience the business owner can rely upon for guidance. Law and business blur. The, the line is not right between the two of them. So there's a lot of, hey, I've got this problem with this customer or with this vendor or with this employee. How do you think I should handle it? And the legal answer could be very quick, could be very pointed. But in reality, what the owner is coming back with is, I need help. Give me advice. What would you do? What do you suggest I do? And that, and those suggestions are not always going to be legal. Half the time, they're going to be business operations. That is where working with somebody closely from the get-go becomes so important because not only at the beginning do they point you in the right direction, but they know what you're doing. They've been with you since inception. And it's kind of like, you know, talking to your older brother. Uh, you're talking to your, but but, right. But they bill me every time they talk to me and I know it's value for money. So when do I talk to the attorney? I mean, obviously I have a pressing problem. I will talk to the attorney, but time is money and I want to mind my spend, but I don't want to be penny wise pound foolish. So I talk to them when I'm negotiating a contract 
reviewing some paper that's been given to me, somebody's not done what they said they would do in their contract. What other times do I talk to the attorney? When else do I bring them in in advance of, you know, there's some things that scream legal, usually a contract, but what is the thing? When do I bring them in? That's not screaming legal. Well, bringing them in is, is a function of having legal as a line item in your budget. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, 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 I discourage my clients from uh, trying to think or, or thinking that the, you know, the clock is ticking when, when, uh, when, when I pick up the phone, because you, you know what, it, it's, it doesn't have to work that way if you've got an attorney who is flexible in how they approach how, how they approach business, the, the business of law. And that dovetails back to what I was saying about the big law where you don't have that flexibility uh, because, of the, because of the bill of law requirement. The, the other answer here gets into alternative fee arrangements. Um, mm. And alternative fee arrangements became really quite popular probably uh, maybe about uh, 12, 13 years ago. Uh, because a lot of the bigger clients began to say, gee, why are we paying all this money every time on these cases? We should work out some way that w- would save us money. And a lot of law firms sort of jumped on that, trying to be responsive to clients and created different ways to build a client. They, in some ways they have caught on, in some ways they really haven't caught on. Where they have caught on tends to be with bigger clients, a Fortune 500 company who can anticipate that they're going to get 250 employment disputes during the course of the year. They have a history of doing that. And they went back to the law firm and did analysis as to how much these cases cost on average. And they created formulas out there. So that way, you know, that, that Fortune 500 company has got a better handle on that line item in the budget. Smaller companies tend to be uh, more resistant to it. I think there's a bit of an attitude that people tend to suspect that when a lawyer proposes an alternative fee arrangement, it is simply a way for the attorney to try to make more money than they would have hourly, mm-hmm. uh, which is skepticism, uh, which is probably legitimate skepticism with many attorneys who are looking to take advantage of situations. Uh, but there are those, and I'm one of them, who will create a fee structure uh, that's based upon a monthly number, uh, X number of dollars a month, and we'll provide why sort of services or why number so retain a retainer kind of situation like a like a retainer but the major difference at least with what i do is that i mean a retainer is basically depositing money in the bank right instead of going to the bank you're going to your lawyer's iota account the trust account and, and it's being held there for you and then when you make the phone call the money gets drawn off what I try to do with, with my clients is I try to establish a fee arrangement that actually provides for unlimited emails and unlimited phone calls in any given month. Okay. Uh, so it's a value. Of, it's a value of on call. Bingo. And the right. idea is I want the client to pick the phone up and call me. Right. I want the client to bounce the idea past me because I can give feedback on it, hopefully good feedback that saves you hours down the line (laughs) well yeah and and i and i don't want them to feel that hesitancy that you've expressed of geez you know every time i pick up the phone i get uh you know i get a bill from my lawyer that's 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 what i don't want them to feel but i will also say many many clients uh, i think tend to be hesitant to that because that hourly model is so firmly ingrained in businesses sure right so so that sounds good and it's good to know that that's a a way that some people structure it, it certainly seems appealing to me. 
So let's imagine that I am in this structure and I have the phone calls as I should have the phone calls and everything's you know going along swimmingly. And then somebody doesn't abide by their contract <laughs> or somebody names their business your name and you think I've got to stop them from doing it or I've got to get them to do what they said they would do. How do we think about litigation? Do we do we immediately call you up and say, I want to sue them? How do you approach when things go south? Well, the easy answer for the client who calls you up and says, I want to sue them. The easy question is why? Uh-huh. And what I learned probably about four or five years into my career and wish that law, law schools had, had taught me four or five years earlier uh, is that one of the most important things that a lawyer can do is work with the client to establish what the expectations are. So if the client is calling up and saying, I want to sue, the question of why helps to define what those expectations would be and what the problem is. Life in general would be a lot easier if people just did what they said they were going to do. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen. And unfortunately, you have to take steps against that. But you can't do it in a vacuum. So for instance, in the United States, uh, typically you're paying your own lawyer's fees unless there's a provision in the contract in a business contract. To the contrary, in a consumer contract, at least in my state, if there is a provision that that shifts fees between winners and losers, that's usually held to be invalid because it can harm a consumer. But in a business-to-business situation, it's generally enforced. But beyond that, you're looking to incur a cost to basically prove yourself right. And that's not always, being right is not always the best thing. Um, yeah, even I, if I, you're I, even if you're morally right, ethically right, financially saying I'm right may not right. really get you what you want. The, the way I explain it to to clients is that when they're making a decision about whether or not to sue, or frankly even whether or not to continue a lawsuit uh, or settle, is that there are three criteria that they need to work through when they make their decision. It's ultimately the client's decision. My job is to advise and counsel. I can't make the decision for them. I won't make the decision for them because I want them to have ownership in it. But Mm. those three criteria are legal, business, and emotional. So the first one, legal, is basically asked, where do we stand within the law? Do we Mm -hmm. have uh, a good argument under the law? Do we have good facts that would support uh, our argument under the law? Or do we not? Is, is, it, is, it a good, is it a good legal case or is it not a good legal case? The second criteria is the business uh, aspect of it. Is pursuing the litigation good for the business or bad for the business? Even mm-hmm. if you win and say you win and you're awarded $50,000 in damages, but it costs you $100,000 to get there, what really did you win? Right. Um, and, and, and that's not always... A cut and dry question. I had a case uh, a number of years ago out in California where my client's competitor was caught bad mouthing my client's product, caught red handed. And so my client went after them for uh, defamation, saying improper bad things about our product to potential customers. And uh, we ended up getting a settlement. We, part of the settlement that we fought hard for was a written apology from the company and the salesperson that we could then show our potential uh, potential customers as a way to bounce back from this. And there was a payment, uh, there was a small payment of money associated with it. My client was, was money-wise upside down in the case, um, six figures upside down. Yeah. It, it had cost them a lot more money to get to this point. 
uh, than money that they recovered. But from a business standpoint, it was important for them to invest that money in the case to get that apology and to get that letter because then they would be able to sell more of their product in the market. So right. So then they could also shut down the other side, but they didn't know that they would win when they made that decision. They didn't know that they would end up with that letter. So that was a gamble. It certainly was a gamble, and but that was the goal was was to basically, even if it cost more money than they would get out in the lawsuit, the goal was to get a remedy that would then be useful in, in their business and allow the business to continue and expand. Most of the time, I tell you, it's going to cost you $100,000 to make, to make $50,000. You're going to tell me, no, I'm not going to spend that money. And that's something that you need, that a business owner needs to analyze when the time comes. The third criteria that, that I really um, spend a lot of time talking about with my clients is the emotional. Because when you are wronged, and this is very common for small business owners, because in so many ways, you know, they become their business or their business becomes them. So it's, it's very intertwined. And when somebody does something against the business, the owner feels wronged. They have hurt me personally, and I'm going to go get my pound of flesh, and I'm going to exact revenge upon them. That's a great motive, I guess, at the very beginning, because you're satisfying that, you know, that lust for vengeance that that we all have inside ourselves. Uh, But the problem is that lust for vengeance will dissipate over time. I had a case where the, uh, my client was fully involved in that lust for vengeance. He had sold his business. The buyer came back and called my guy a, a cheat and a common, the whole common, the whole kind of deal and wanted to get, uh, I think, $2 million back from his purchase price. And my guy said, I don't care how much it costs. I want to go after this guy. And I gave him a speech and talked through everything. And that was in July of the year. The day before Thanksgiving, he called me and told me that he wanted to drop the lawsuit because he had gone deer hunting the weekend before, had shot his first deer, and now everything was different. So it can, change, what, it can change on a dime. Well, it's very interesting, the three, the three criteria, legal, business, and emotional, really understanding how much you get at the end of each day from these things and what it means for your business. If you sort of step up, you get out of the dance floor and go up to the balcony and look at how these things play together. And, that's, and emotions will change over time. Intellectually, he hadn't changed his position at all. He felt very right. He, you know, legally, we felt we had a very good case. But emotionally, it was, I'm no longer invested in this dispute. Emotionally, I want the dispute to be done. And that's very important to be cognizant of at the very beginning. Because if that lust is, is for vengeance is, is a motive, one, it's going to color your evaluation of the other two criteria. And mm. two, it's going to change. At some point in time, it's going to change. It may not be four months. It may be a year. And how are you going to handle it at that point in time when it changes? And when I go through this exercise with my clients, uh, it really forces them to reevaluate the issue. And sometimes the answer is, yes, I want to push forward. I want to continue to do this because, because of A, B, and C reasons. And then sometimes there's like, geez, you know, I'm not sure if I want that hassle. I, I, I can't take the time off of work to go testify in court or be deposed. You know, it's, it's going to cost me a lot more money to pay you earnest than, than I'm going to make in this. You know, you, basically, you chalk it up to the cost of doing business. When you run a business, you can't have everything the way you want it all the time. Which is an important thing for those young people who are starting a business because they don't want to be part of the corporate world to understand that when you start your own business, you are beholden to your customers and you are beholden to 
perhaps the environment, the vendors, whatever, whatever else goes on that you don't operate completely free of constraints. Right. And then the ultimate irony, when you start your own business because you don't want to be in that corporate culture, you're actually creating your own corporate culture. Uh, and and yes. the, more you know, yes. the more expectations you have and the more, if you're bringing in outside investors, things shift. Want, want an example? You ever eaten Ben and Jerry's ice cream? Right. Right. You know, when Ben and Jerry started that, it was this cute little Vermont business. They actually had a rule in their handbook that the highest paid employee could be paid no more than five times. The lowest paid employee. The lowest right? paid employee. And you know what happens when you get real big? Well, if, you're, if your janitor is still making minimum wage, your fancy CEO is only making five times minimum wage. And it's very tough to bring in somebody who's going to run a multi-million dollar business. You start paying your janitors a lot more, I think. Is what <laughs> yeah, anyway, is, we have, we have run through our time. So thank you so much for telling such great stories and giving such great examples. I think I could have you on again to talk about some of the more intricate aspects of contracts and everything else, but we don't have time today. So thank you so much. Well, it, it has truly been my pleasure. It's always uh, it's always great to chat with you. Thank you very much for bringing me on. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next. <laughs>